what we're going to be talking about this morning is Athanasius, Ambrose, and Arianism, otherwise known as A-cubed. And I almost called it that, but I figured it only the math majors would care. So instead, I'll just put it down like this. Athanasius, Ambrose, and Arianism. I want us to discuss these three things before we have communion. So here's the start for this class. Whoops. When I was a third-year law student, I clerked for the city attorney of Lubbock, Texas. His name was John Ross. Now, John Ross was an, an older fella uh, to me. I'm, I'm young uh, at that time. I'm in my young 20s, and, and he was uh, uh, in his 60s. And to me, that was just devastatingly old <clears throat> back then. And uh, um, I had a marvelous chance to interview for a job in Houston, Texas, with a firm called Fulbright and Jaworski. And it was, by reputation, one of the most stellar firms in the country. Leon Jaworski had been the Watergate prosecutor, and I was thrilled over simply having the interview. John Ross found out that I had that interview coming. Now, Fulbright and Jaworski had only hired two people in the history of my law school from Texas Tech. They didn't hire a lot from that school. So John Ross said to me, Mark, when you get down there to interview, you're a reflection of not only Texas Tech and Lubbock, but you're a reflection of me because you work for me. And I said, yes, sir. And he said, so I am going to impart to you some wisdom. This is the greatest secret you can have to a successful job interview. I said, sprinkle me. I'm ready. And he said, uh, uh, he said, okay, at every job interview, there comes a point where the interviewer says to you, do you have any questions you'd like to ask me? And he said, that's your opportunity. I'm going to give you the answer that is perfect for you. And I said, I'm ready. I'm ready. Tell me. By the way, I've passed this answer on to all of my kids, to all of my friends, to anyone who comes up to me that that is interviewing for a job. This is really good. So you folks who at one day are going to be interviewing for a job, you file this away. This is a good one. When you get asked that question, John Ross said to me, do you have any questions you would like to ask me? You look him in the eye, you smile, and with sincerity, you say, yes, as a matter of fact, I have one. I don't presume that I'm going to get this job, but if I should be so fortunate, have you found any recurring problems that happen with your new hires? Anything that I could work on before I get here so you wouldn't have that problem with me? Thought, that sounds pretty good. I thought, That's pretty good. 
So kudos to John Ross. I throw that in here both so this class has practical help for you getting a job and because I'm going to tell you something else about John Ross and I wanted to have a positive to go with a negative. So John Ross was turning 60 or 65. I don't remember his birthday. And we wanted to get him a birthday gift. And John Ross had a very, some might say, pessimistic view of the world at times. So we decided that we would get him a birthday gift that kind of for us encapsulated the attitude of John Ross. Since it was a late birthday, we decided the color of mourning is black. So we would get him a black t-shirt and on it we wrote a slogan that just seemed appropriate for John Ross. Life is hard and then you die. Now, I have found that actually to be a slogan I've embraced at times because the older I've gotten, I've realized that yes, there are marvelous days and yes, there are marvelous times. There are delightful opportunities in life, but sometimes life is hard and then you die. I mean, it's, it is not always easy street. And so this morning, I want this to be kind of how we look at this class. Some days. Everything's coming up roses. The house lands on the wicked witch. She's dead. You have the yellow brick road. All the little munchkins are jumping up and down and singing. And life is dandy. But some days. road ain't there and the dogs of society are howling and you're in life is hard and then you die mode now i just this is i'm sorry this is life and i'd love to tell you that if you become a christian everything is always fantastic but life is hard and it's hard for everybody God never said, I'm giving you paradise on earth in that body when you meet me as your Lord and maker. God said, that body is destined for the grave. This world is destined for destruction. But I will give you eternally a body and a life that will last forever. A glorified body. And he says, I will take you there, and it's the hope and confidence of that that will be your bedrock foundation for you to live in this world with a joy that is unexplainable, a peace that passes understanding, a happiness and a joy that people otherwise can't have because we have overcome the world. That's the promise, and it makes a difference. So that's what we're going to look at today, but we're going to do it through the framework of three different things. We're going to look at Arianism, Athanasius, and Ambrose. Now, if you were here last week, you got your feet wet with Arianism. Arianism came after a... a here, let's go to the um, Elmo for a moment. Uh, there was a... Uh, Whoops. 
there was a priest, not a bishop, just a priest, but there was a priest named Arius in Alexandria. Uh, let's see if we can't do this a little bit better. A priest named Arius in Alexandria, Egypt. Man, this is just loaded with A's today. Alexandria. And this priest named Arius was of the opinion that God the Father made Jesus. And there was a time where Jesus did not exist. And Jesus was less than God the Father. Modern Arians are Jehovah Witnesses. It's a fundamental tenet of Jehovah's Witnesses that Jehovah God is of greater, um, um, is a greater being than Jesus Christ, his made son. So this was the viewpoint. And last week, if we go back to the PowerPoint, we discussed the Council of Nicaea, which was called by the Emperor Constantine in a town outside of modern Istanbul, Egypt, in 325, to get the church together on this issue of who Jesus was. And so, the church met for several months. Some of the bishops at that meeting were Arians. Most of the bishops were not. The meeting consisted of examining scriptures to understand who the apostles understood Jesus to be. The theology was not manufactured at Nicaea. Nicaea was an investigation in the theology of the apostles. So in this, out of it came something that was fantastic. This is the good days, the yellow brick road days. The Nicene Creed came. And the Nicene Creed, the We Believe in God the Father Creed that many of us know, some churches still say it every Sunday. The Nicene Creed says that Jesus is one substance with the Father. That Greek word, one substance, had actually even been recommended by the Emperor Constantine himself. It's homoousius in the Greek. Homoousius, one substance, the same substance. Now, they added at Nicaea in the creed another phrase to make sure people understood the, the heresy of Arianism. That Jesus was begotten, but not made. He was begotten into human form, but he was not made. He already existed. Okay? So... That's Council of Nicaea. That's a yellow brick road day. But like everything else, it's not all yellow brick road. There were even at Nicaea some bishops who refused to sign the Nicene Creed. Two in particular that we know about were excommunicated and exiled. Kicked out of the Roman Empire, because at that point, the Roman Empire under Constantine was a Christian organization. So they get exiled, they get kicked out. Arianism does not die. 
It's not the kind of thing where the church just, look, where's Larry Burgess? Larry, where are you? Okay, there's Larry Burgess. Larry Burgess writes me uh, some heresy email. I, I, I write him back. I said, that's, that's a heresy email. Here's the reason why. He, he doesn't just accept it. He argues with me. So I have to write him four or five times. Then finally, I send him a commentary because I'm tired of arguing. So just read this. He emails me back and says, I have, I'm, I'm right. And I have to email him back and say, no, here it is. And he still fusses until finally we're walking in. He says, I'm glad you agree with me. I said, I didn't agree with you. You finally agreed with me. He said, no, you agreed with me. We can't even get that right. (laughs) Just because the Council of Nicaea says something doesn't mean everybody's going along with it. Just because, look, I dare say. If you sit Dr. David Fleming down at the same table with me, we can quickly come up with some things we disagree with on each other. Fortunately, none of it, and with all love to Larry, none of it is a heresy issue like who is Jesus. But that's the way it is. Some days it's yellow brick road. Other days it's the black t-shirt. Now, there is a junior fella who's there at Nicaea. He's helping the Alexandrian bishop. His name is Athanasius. And Athanasius leaves from Nicaea, where he assisted the bishop. And lo and behold, three years later, the bishop's dead, and Athanasius is made bishop. That's a yellow brick road day. Athanasius, the bishop of Alexandria, at a fairly young age, I might add, a staunch Trinitarian, believes in the Trinity, believes in the Nicene Creed, believes that Jesus Christ is of one substance with the Father. He's no Arian, but, you know, Just because he becomes the bishop doesn't mean it was all yellow brick road for him. The emperor Constantine, who made Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire, the emperor Constantine, who called the Council of Nicaea, who paid for all the bishops to attend, who put them up for two or three months while they were there, who came up with the word homoousius, The Emperor Constantine, the ruler of the known world, decided that the people came down a little harsh on the Arians. So the Emperor Constantine urges the new bishop of Alexandria, Athanasius, go ahead and accept Arius back. Go ahead and let him be a priest there in Alexandria. You know, maybe we were a little too harsh on the Arians. After all, God is God, and different people can have different views of Jesus. You know, just just cut him some slack. Athanasius stands up to the emperor of the Roman Empire. 
and says, no, that's heresy. Not going to do it. He's not going to be a priest under my watch. Yeah, got him exiled. So Constantine exiles him. Athanasius, yellow brick road bishop. Life is hard and then you die. Hit the road, boy. You're out of the Roman Empire. You're not following me. You're gone. So do you know what he does? Athanasius goes out as an evangelist and just starts sharing the faith everywhere. He becomes a missionary. Fine, you're sending me outside the Roman Empire. I'll just tell everybody about Jesus. The Son of God, begotten, not made. Homoousius. Of one substance with God the Father. And he spreads, Athanasius spreads Trinity doctrine everywhere he goes. Well, this isn't working. The people of Alexandria refused to appoint a new bishop. So now you've got a bishopless church. Which means Arius can't become a priest anyway because there's no bishop to allow him to be one. So finally it's kind of like, okay, fine, fine, fine. You can come on back. And Athanasius is brought home. Yellow brick road. God be glorified. Only for plan B to take place. Plan B. Let's say that Athanasius is a murderer. I think Athanasius killed one of his opponents. Athanasius arranged for one of these Arians to be killed. He's a murderer. Indict him for murder. Arrest him. And he's indicted for murder. Now the charges, they kind of fell apart when the guy that was supposedly killed was found. Mm. So we've got a yellow brick road day, but in the process, this faith is still being spread as Athanasius is killed. And the faith was being spread because he went around telling everybody, I didn't kill him, I didn't kill him, I didn't kill him, I didn't kill him. Why? Because Jesus is Lord. And he wouldn't have me kill him. I would give my own life for that. So then, Constantine dies. And his son Constantius takes over as the next Roman emperor. Constantius says... You know, there's not a lot of difference here. You've heard the expression, that doesn't make one iota's difference. Some believe that this is the origination of that. Here it is. If we go back to the Elmo for a moment. I told you there is this Greek word, homo, ousius, Uh, homo, ooh, there's an extra O in there, sorry. Homoousius in the Greek. Let's make this a little bit bigger. And I can do much better writing that. In the Greek, it's homo ousius. O-U-S. Homo ousius. And that means one substance. 
Now, what Constantius, the new emperor, says is, just add an iota. It's the smallest letter in the Greek alphabet. Just stick one of those right in there, an iota. You don't dot the I in Greek, sorry. An iota. So instead of homoousius, it would be pronounced homoousius. What difference does an iota make? What's the difference of one iota, as we say it in English? Well, it makes the difference between it being one substance and a like or similar substance. So it's not the same, but he's pretty close. It's just an I. Well, um, Athanasius says, no, we're not going to add an I. There is a difference, and uh, that's, that's heresy. I'm not recognizing Arianism, no. So the new emperor, Constantius, son of Constantine, exiles him again. Says, fine, you just, you just, you're just kicked out. Well, that doesn't work either. Eventually, he's brought back. And while he's brought back, he's worshiping the Lord. What a wonderful yellow brick road experience. Isn't it great to be worshiping? And that's what he was doing when he was arrested. Well, they sent the people to arrest him. The church found out he was about to be arrested and they snuck him out the back door during worship. And he went and he lived in his father's, actually went to the cemetery and hid in his father's grave for about four months while the church brought him food. During these exile periods, he's not only evangelizing, it's when he's writing his materials, materials that help change the world, materials that spread the faith. It's an amazing story of a real man who's called by God's purposes, who stands up for God's truth, and as a result suffers persecution. Black t-shirt days where life is hard. And he dies as he spreads the faith. It's a pretty neat story. Now, let me tell you about St. Ambrose. Ship gears for a moment. St. Ambrose, so Alexandria, Egypt, is down south of Rome. North of Rome is modern Germany, ancient Gaul. That's where Ambrose is born. Now, Ambrose has some marvelous yellow brick road days from the very beginning. He comes from a really cool Christian home. Both of his parents, devout believers. His dad is a of Roman nobility. He's a Lord High Muckety Muck in the Roman army and the Roman government. And he rules over a lot of Gaul. And so here you've got a man who's born into a great Christian home. He's got a brother. He's got a sister. His sister becomes a nun. I mean, the guy's just really with it. Got a great life. Born in the 300s. We're still in the same time period. Though he's a little bit younger than Athanasius. We don't know exactly, by the way, when he was born. Back then, they didn't celebrate birthdays. Isn't that kind of weird? They celebrate death days. So a lot of these people, we know exactly when they died. 
Eh, it's kind of sketchy on when they were born. They just, they just didn't celebrate birthdays. Wasn't a, wasn't a big deal. So anyway, he's born into this great Christian home. Yellow brick road day. What happens? While he's still a young man, his dad dies. And when dad dies, there goes the career, there goes the job, there goes the nobility, there goes the money. But mom is able to figure out how to make things work, sends the kids down to Rome where they get a great education. From that education, uh, uh, Ambrose becomes a Roman governor. And he's the governor ruling out of Milan. Big city even back then, north of Rome in Italy. So you've got the governor of Milan, Ambrose. He's made governor in his 20s. Now, Milan is ruled over by a bishop. The bishop is an Arian. And this is a problem that's plaguing the church. You're decades away from Nicaea. The bishop's an Arian. And the bishop dies. And so the question becomes, who's going to take the bishop's place? Is it going to be an Arian? Or is it going to be a Trinitarian? Someone who believes that Jesus is the son of God, and but yet is fully God. Which is it? So the fight is waging back and forth between the Arians and the Trinitarians. And ultimately, they go in front of Ambrose, and they both camps said, well, look, why don't you just become bishop? Ambrose says, I could do that. And so Ambrose becomes bishop. And as he becomes bishop, the first thing he does is he sells everything he's got. Sells all of his family's wealth. Gives it all to the poor and to the church. And then requires everybody else working for the church to do the same thing. That's a credibility builder, isn't it? Can you imagine that? He takes the job of bishop, elder, overseer. And sells everything he's got and gives it to the church and the poor. Then requires the rest of the church to do the same. After that, or in conjunction with that, I should say, he starts studying theology intently. Now, we have reason to believe that is, even though he grew up Latin speaking as a Roman, that his home may have been a Greek home of Greek origin because he clearly knew his Greek well. And so Athanasius starts studying theology like crazy. And he starts studying the writings of these people that we've been studying about in this class, Origen and and uh, Basil and, and others. We haven't covered Basil in this class, but we will. So here he is. He's got all of this, and, and he's using it to truly teach not just himself, but his congregants. And what's more, what doesn't surprise you, is he's not just a teacher. He's also a pastor. He's out there with his people. And he's talking to them and he's trying to meet their needs. And he's trying to take care of them. All credibility builders. And and Milan, he's, he's a major bishop. Now, let me tell you what's happening in the Roman Empire. I put it under the black t-shirt days. Here's why. A new Roman emperor is anointed, for lack of a better way of saying it, 
proclaimed, I guess, is more historically accurate. His name's Valentinian II. Now, Valentinian II, after the death of the preceding Roman emperor, he's made emperor by competing army factions because they figure he's not going to fuss too much. He's four years old. See, they didn't appoint him at two because that's the terrible twos. He could have been fussy. He's four. He's made it past those. So who's really ruling and calling the shots is his mother, the empress Justina. Well, Justina is an Arian who thinks that Jesus is less than God the Father and was made by God the Father and that there had been a time where there was no Jesus. Um, that doesn't flow real well with our dear pastor, Bishop Ambrose. So Ambrose just starts saying that the empress is, is a heretic, which causes a little bit of discord in their relationship. So the empress decides that she's figured out how to fix this. She's going to order, actually have her son order, that the Bishop of Milan, Ambrose, must set aside one church, just one, for Arian worship. So the Arians can go to that church, and those who believe in the Trinity can go to the other church, Chiz. Well, Ambrose says, he says, that's not happening. I'm not taking one of God's churches and giving. So Justina says, come to court right now. This is a face-to-face, you and me. And Ambrose goes to court. Now you can see what Justina's arguments would have been. A, emperor, ruler, B, these church buildings were built by the Roman Empire. After Constantine, the government paid for the building. The government's telling you to take one of the buildings they paid for and give it to this other religious group to, if nothing else, quell the riots that are breaking out. Ambrose looks at her, says... Nope, not going to do it. She says, then I'm not leaving you a choice. I was going to let you select the church. You could have picked the one on the outskirts of town. You could have picked the one that nobody's attending. You could have picked the one in disrepair. You could have picked the one without indoor plumbing. But you're not willing to do any of it. So, we're taking your church. Where you, the Bishop of Milan, sits. And we're turning it into the Arian church. And um, the riots continue. And the response of Ambrose... It's pretty simple. 
He says, over my dead body. And he leaves the empress and he goes back to church and he starts teaching his congregants some of the worship songs he's been writing. He wrote a lot of worship songs and he wrote antiphonal songs where one part would be sung by one group and then another part answered by another group and they'd sing them back and forth. So the empress sends the Roman soldiers to arrest him and drag him off from his church. The congregants form a ring of protection around him and around the church and won't let the Roman soldiers in without killing them. Where the soldiers truly are going to have to kill the churchgoers to get to the bishop. Didn't work out quite the way they wanted it to. Justina dies. And the emperor himself, Valentinian II, as a teenage boy, turns to Ambrose as his mentor. And Ambrose takes good care of the emperor until Justinian dies as a young man in his 20s, young 20s. Then comes the new emperor. Now, I'd love to tell you at this point in time that... Uh, 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 Everything's hunky-dory and everyone's a Trinitarian, but they're not. You still have problems. So Ambrose presides over the funeral of Valentinian. Theodosius goes out as a new king, emperor. And he's a Christian, but he's got some problems. You know, he has a tendency to slaughter innocent people. And he slaughters some 7,000 or so innocent people. And Ambrose hears about it and says, Well, Emperor, you got a couple of choices here. You can repent or we're going to excommunicate you from the church. Now that's a massive move. He, the church doesn't have an army. The emperor of the Roman Empire has the army. And Ambrose still calls him to account and says, if your life and you're not living holy, you better repent before God. And if you won't repent before God, we're throwing you out of the church. Theodosius, the emperor, repents. And when he dies, his funeral is also presided over by Ambrose. And Jesus is honored. You know... Yeah, there are yellow brick road days, there are black t-shirt days, but I want to tell you, in the midst of all of those, there's Jesus. And he's a constant. And he never changes. And he's not only there on good days, and he's not ignoring us on the bad days. And the interesting thing when we look at it through history is in the yellow brick road days, but also the black t-shirt days, in all of those days, faith was proclaimed. And Jesus was lifted up, even through the actions of those who were trying to stop the truth from advancing. In the midst of all of the individual choices being made by human beings, God weaves together a tapestry where faith is proclaimed, where Jesus is constant, and where Jesus is honored. It's fantastic.
Which brings us to our points for home, which is our communion this morning. One of the things that church did routinely, what churches have done since the very beginning, is take communion regularly and routinely. Because the constant Jesus, the affirmed faith, the Jesus who is worshipped, honored, and proclaimed, himself instituted the Lord's Supper. I want to show you the passage this morning that we're going to do this with from Matthew 26. When it was evening, Jesus reclined at table with the twelve. And as they were eating, he said, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. I mean, you've got a a golden yellow brick road day here with Jesus having a dinner with his apostles. And yet in the midst of it, Jesus recognizes the black t-shirt. One of you will betray me. They're very sorrowful. They begin to say, is it I? Jesus said, it's he who dipped his hand in the dish with me. He'll portray me. Now, in the process of that, as they were eating, Jesus takes bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples. And he said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he'd given thanks, he gave it to him saying, drink of it, all of you. This is the blood of the covenant poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And then Jesus says this, which is our emphasis right now. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. We are in the kingdom of God. The church is the kingdom of God. If you have faith in Jesus, God's son, God incarnate, begotten, not made, of one substance with the Father, who was and is and is to come, then you are in the kingdom of God, which is the kingdom of the Father and is the kingdom of Jesus. And Jesus says, when we participate in the body and blood of Christ, he does it with us. And so as we're going to take time and participate in these communion elements this morning, we do so recognizing that Jesus is with us participating in this common meal where we recognize his body was given for us, his blood was shed for us, because there are some things in this world that are very real. Hear me. Touch yourself. You're real. Examine yourself. You are a sinner. And so am I. There is a real God that cannot be touched in the sense that we are. He is nothing mere physical. 
He's not created as this physical is. He is a real God who cannot tolerate and dwell with sin. But he loves you. And he wants you to dwell with him. So the sin's a problem. And it's a human problem. And it's a divine problem. It needs a human answer. And it needs a divine answer. And the only answer that will ever merit is one that is both human and divine. And so God divine becomes human. And he dies. Paying the penalty. Not simply a physical death. But an isolation from God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the sky turns black. And Jesus dies in our stead. But he's God and death cannot conquer God. So he is resurrected. And before he ascends to the Father, makes a physical showing repeatedly in front of hundreds of people to bear testimony to the fact that we have been made whole. By his blood. And we have resurrection. In our future. So with that. Would you please take the bread. It's been wrapped in muslin. By Mark Wilkie and his crew. Thank you all for making it. Thank you for wrapping it. But would you take the bread. And would you break off a piece. And pass it around. And see that each person has a piece. The bread is unleavened because it's a Passover bread. Leaven was not used in Passover bread because leaven, and even in Passover today, leaven represented sin. So you have no leaven in this because this is the body of Christ. It's without sin. And Jesus says, take and eat. This is my body. Would you do the same? Now, if you would take the cup and the fruit of the vine. And if someone would be responsible for seeing that it's somehow poured for people. Jesus taught the Israelites, or God taught the Israelites... That life is in the blood. And it didn't take a, a veterinarian to know if you took blood out of a creature or the creature had no more blood, the creature had no life. 
you cannot live without blood. And Jesus, drawing upon the color of the wine, took and said, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins and sacrifices were already instituted by God to foreshadow this and to teach the people that some life had to be given for redemption of sin. But a dead bull or a dead goat, a dead sheep, a dead pigeon is not going to forgive your sins or mine. But the death of Jesus Christ will. And you and I can think of the darkest, worst, most evil thing we've done, we've thought, we've contemplated, we've wished. And know that this blood washes away all of the true moral guilt that we would otherwise carry with us to the grave and it's gone this is the blood of Jesus the blood of the covenant poured out for the forgiveness of your sins and mine so let's partake together would you pray with me Lord, we give you thanks for this communion bread. We give you thanks for this communion cup. We give you thanks for your body, which was broken and given for us. We give you thanks for your blood, which was poured out for us. Father, we've got Yellow brick road days and we've got black t-shirt days. But not one of those days is lived without your blood washing over us. And the security of your presence and our eternity with you. And for that, Lord, we are eternally grateful. And we do come before you by the blood of Jesus Christ, God. Fully divine, fully human whom we confess as our Lord and Savior and in whom we pray and approach you and in whom we live with forgiveness.